Why whites help others and why it is our undoing? Most people will argue that we are all selfish. If we do something good, we do it for selfish reasons. That may well be true, but why do whites get something out of helping so many other people when no one else does? Whites are the only group that ended slavery at a time they were the least likely to be enslaved. There is no thanks for this, there never is, that is the troubling thing. Whites are the only group that makes a habit of helping other races and yet the help is not appreciated and perhaps not wanted. The conversation around slavery centers on a couple of hundred years in a small number of places where some whites owned or traded slaves. The minority of the people involved in the short span of time in which it happened is not considered nor compared to the span in time and space of Africa and Islamic slave trading. Whites are vilified for owning slaves despite being the minority of slave owners and given no credit for ending it, though we are the only group to do so. Of course, white nations benefited from ending slavery. It was not done at a total loss or sacrifice. Slavery is not only the most inefficient form of human labor it dehumanizes those involved in it. Slavery is akin to having a large public sector. Slaves eat and are housed but the real result is an enforced primitivism. America would have been richer and more developed had slavery never happened. The reason for this is the same reason why nations with a large public sector are worse off than those who are more libertarian. A slave does minimal work and must still eat and be housed. Now we look at the depressed condition of the slave and we commiserate with them. They live in a sorry state. But look at a plantation as a culture. If we attempted to operate an economy using a thousand slaves and three free men, there would be extreme poverty for all. The productivity of slaves is low and generally confined to the production of a single commodity. Slave labor can be used to produce cotton or gold or other product requiring lots of labor but little engineering. We noticed the South grew the cotton, but the processing went to England, who made far more money in the processing than the South did in the farming. Growing cotton using slaves kept the price for cotton depressed. However, this benefited England more than the plantation. But this commodification of the economy is only a minor problem, compared to the impact on demand. By relying on slave labor, the economy tended to focus on a single agricultural commodity, one for which there was little demand, compared to the population. Therefore, the product had to be exported and most other goods needed to be imported. The few slaves not producing cotton or tobacco produced little beyond the bare necessities. The economy, focused on a couple of commodities made it difficult to industrialize. Slave economies suffer from a dearth of demand and low levels of specialization. There is no initiative for a slave-based economy to move beyond a commodity-based economy. The medieval economy suffered the same problem for the same reason. The peasant represented very little demand, what demand there was could be satisfied in-house as craftwork. Britain the cultural center of what might be called white culture, never had much use for slaves and was instrumental in bringing the trade to an end, at least in the West. Slaves were too important to the African and Islam economies for them to end it. The wealth of Britain is partially explained by the value added to the slave-produced commodity after it was shipped to the cotton gins of Britain. Cheap cotton goods were shipped around the world even to Africa to pay for the slaves shipped to the Caribbean, South America, and the Democrat-run states. Obviously, Britain ended the slave trade partly out of self-interest, but not all of the cost of doing this could be considered an investment. The lives and wealth lost to end the slave trade in the West was not easily replaced. It is in fact not what Britain did, as to why they did it, that is significant. Britain unlike many other countries valued life. 
This vitalism can be contested in individual cases. But at issue is not an absolute, unqualified concern, the relative strength of British vitalism is what is important. The rich in Britain felt a social obligation few elites elsewhere, felt. This sense of a common purpose came from a general sense that life was a gift and with it came an obligation. But even the most ignoble felt an obligation to do their part. The British had faith in one another, seen both in the thin red line and in their willingness to serve their nation, even when they lived in the most favored of positions. Because there was this high level of trust, the British created a strong banking system, a strong and relatively trustworthy bureaucracy, a vibrant church and family. In other words, British institutions were strong because there was a shared sense of the importance of life. Life had, at least for the British, inherent value. The British lived in faith, a faith that was grounded in a shared respect for life. But to live in faith, to trust one another, there must be a non-negotiable standard. It does not have to be employed as an absolute, but ontologically. There must be something that if adhered to makes one succeed more than those who abjure the principle. The British are vitalist. Not all of them and not all to the utmost degree. The power of vitalism as a potent agent is relative. The individual who is a vitalist and a nation that is vitalist will have an advantage over individuals and nations who are liberal. When a people value life and see it as intrinsically distinct from matter, they trust each other to a greater degree. They are more honest. This veneration of life is vitally important, and it is what sets Britain apart from other nations and peoples. As to the question of why we see whites generally, but Britain especially, and by this we mean those of British ancestry, at the forefront of charities in various movements, even those which are alien to their own best interests, is that whites value human life. Because of this, whites have chosen to trust others in the way they trust their own kind, usually to their detriment. Whites cannot or at least ought not, blame other peoples and cultures for what happens to them. Islam for example has always been upfront about taqiyya and their ultimate goal, though they might lie about it in conversation. We know other peoples are racist and generally focused on promoting the interests of their own race. Whites are probably the only race that fights for other groups' interests. Not sure if there is a black leader who has ever expressed interest in the plight of any group but black people. The very culture of tribes is based on the untrustworthiness of others. Possessions are kept to a minimum to prevent jealousy. This attitude carried over to culture where most cultures betray a tribal outlook. There are internal disagreements but there is a united front when other races or cultures become involved. But, because whites value life, particularly human life, they are susceptible to scams involving the plight of other groups. We are the welfare provider of the world. But of course because other groups lack the integrity of whites and are not reticent about taking a free ride, they take advantage of the tolerance and compassion of whites. There is not a nation in the world as multicultural as white nations. No nation provides as much support for other nations as does the West. Of course, we have benefited from this. Our trust where justified has permitted us to reap great rewards, but it has attracted scam artists and parasites. The problem is that our tolerance is attracting more and more of the wrong sort of person. It is one thing to be forgiving in a climate where second chances are appreciated, but if it only means we are seen as weak and gullible, it creates an ever-growing problem. Even democracy which is an expression of a homogeneous population with shared principles, is being turned against us. A substantial number of aliens can capture the popular vote with enough people, money and political activism. It only takes one election to bring in Sharia law. 
We only lose one election to lose democracy, the constitution, and whatever other safeguards you think you have in place. They know that and if they get the numbers, they will man the police force and control its activities. There is nothing in the West, as it stands, that cannot be utilized by an internal enemy to destroy Western civilization. This is already being done on a small scale with secularists, but any homogenous group with an agenda can take over the West, given a sizable minority and a determined political activism.